Open uh, in the back of the hymnal, uh, as you might have that still on your lap, to page 876, and then we'll turn in the Bible to the book of Esther. First, uh, opening to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, page 876. We've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, which follows the outline of the book of Romans. Uh, sin, salvation, and service, misery, deliverance, and gratitude, guilt, grace, gratitude, however you may have memorized it, and you should memorize uh, the, cate- uh, the outline, at least, of the catechism. It's very helpful to memorize individual questions as well. Um, they come in very useful uh, when witnessing, for example, but that's another story. So Lord's Day 10 is in the second section of the catechism, which deals with how we are delivered from sin and misery through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we have begun to look at what we confessed in the words of the Apostles' Creed, and we are considering today, uh, following on that first uh, phrase of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, uh, about the providence of God our Father. And never lose sight uh, when considering this particular teaching on God's providence that he is Father to a believer, all right? So question 2728, if I read the questions, I would ask you to respond with the answers as printed there. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is... And I hope you noticed as uh, we read through those uh, instances that it's not only good things, but also difficult, dark providences also come from God's fatherly hand. Question 28, then, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Um, For those of you that are not uh, perhaps as familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, that question 28 is in the inimitable style of the Catechism when it teaches a doctrine or a teaching of the Bible. It's not just content to be abstract. Uh, Significantly, Jesus never taught in abstractions, uh, and we ought not to be abstract either. Um, It brings it right down to where the rubber hits the road. How does God's providence help us, right? Personal pastoral application. Uh, that the catechism makes there, and we'll have occasion to look at that this morning. So Esther uh, is a somewhat uh, lesser-known book of the Bible, so I would ask you to turn there. It's before the book of Psalms. Just before the book of Psalms, you have Job. Just before Job, you have Esther. So that's kind of a, you can find your place, all right? Now, in your bulletin, you'll notice that there's not any one particular passage, but the whole book. We're not going to read the whole book. (laughs) 
I'll try to summarize it for you, but we will look at a couple of passages. So let's look at Esther uh, chapter 4. And by the way, the Acevedo's Esther's birthday was yesterday, so appropriate, or should we say providential, (laughs) that we're looking at the book of Esther today. Uh, Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, and I'll I'll review and summarize later, but uh, beginning in verse 12 of Esther chapter 4, and they told Mordecai, all right, Mordecai's a Jew, all right, that what Esther had said, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. There had been a death sentence decreed. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And then chapter 8, verse 17, just one more verse. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Obviously, something dramatically changed. Three uh, points to the sermon this morning. The The purpose, all right, the plot which is central to the book of Esther, and the profit which can be gained by this. That is, how does this teaching help you and me? So the purpose, the plot, and the profit. First of all, the purpose. One theologian said, and I quote, I can prove the doctrine of providence to you in two words, the Jews. And it's the main reason for this book. Now, let me explain that for those of you that are not particularly familiar No people in the history of the world have been preserved apart from a homeland, apart from a nation, a national identity, except the Jewish people. And think of the diaspora after uh, the exile, right, and the return. There was a diaspora, and yet it wasn't until 1946 that the Jews returned to Israel. No people in the history of the world have been preserved as a distinct people apart from a homeland, apart from the Jews. So this theologian is correct. I can prove the doctrine of providence to you in two words, the Jews. That's the main reason for this book, all right? It demonstrates God's providential care of his people in their trials and persecutions. Uh, I'll say more about this in a moment, but they are under Persian, that is foreign, domination, after the exile, all right? And God delivers them from their enemies, from destruction, and instead their enemies are destroyed or converted. Now, why is this important just at the outset, all right? It's important because of the Bible's teaching of the antithesis. The antithesis you find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where God comes after the fall, and there are three parties respectively in the fall. There's Adam, there's Eve, and there's the serpent, right, the devil. And God pronounces a curse on each one of the respective parties in the fall. And on the devil, God says, I will place enmity, hostility, hatred between you and the woman, 
between your seed, your descendants, and the serpent seed, all right? And that's the antithesis. The antithesis is the God-ordained hostility between the seed of the woman, the church, and the seed of the serpent, that is, the kingdom of the devil. And that hatred has ever been there. You see immediately in chapter 4 of Genesis where Cain slays Abel. Hatred, hostility. The world against the church. The descendants of the devil against the descendants of Eve. All right? That hostility has been there, and it's been there throughout the entirety of human history, and it continues today with the persecuted church. There have been more people that have suffered and died for the cause of Christ in the 20th century than all the 19th centuries combined prior to that. That's the antithesis. The hatred of the world, the seed of the serpent, for the church, the seed of the woman. All right, And this book teaches us the same thing. The king and the Persians had decreed that all the Jews were to be put to death. Hatred. All right? And God delivers them from their enemies, from destruction, and then uh, uh, the tables are turned and their enemies are destroyed or converted. So it teaches us about the antithesis. It teaches us something very important about Jesus Christ as well, as we'll see. All right? And it's important today because of Christ's promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are headed for dark times in our country. Judgment is racing towards us. It will, uh, listen, I'm a toxic optimist, all right? But it will get worse before it gets better. But no matter how dark, no matter how dangerous, no matter how difficult the times may be, God's promise stands sure, and Jesus Christ is faithful. He will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We must never forget that, right? This is important for you, all right, because you need to understand that what the catechism says about bad things, right, all right, Uh, uh, they're not chance, right? God is in complete control. He can take even dark providences and difficult things and turn them and use them for our good and for our salvation. So in this book, we could say it pits fate, chance, against God's controlling providence, all right? Okay, so little explanation of this often uh, obscure book. First of all, the history Uh, which is found in um, Esther. Uh, Most of you, I trust, are unfamiliar with it. Um, The historical setting is the events recorded in this book cover a 10-year period during the reign of Persian King Xerxes I. Historically, the events in the book of Esther occurred between the 6th and 7th chapters of the book of Ezra in the Bible. All right? Following the decree of Cyrus, a remnant of Jews returned to Palestine and rebuilt the temple. Animal sacrifices were reinstated and the feasts, there were seven feasts of the Jewish people, you can find them in Leviticus, uh, they were observed. However, most of the Jews remained in the land of their captivity. Now, what's going on in uh, the book of Esther? Esther is one of the world's greatest examples of dramatic narrative. If you're into literature, you should love this book. All right. It is a literary masterpiece, a historical novel filled with action and suspense. I encourage you later today when you go home, read it through. All right, You'll love it. The world's greatest king has an unsubmissive wife. 
The heroine, a Jewish orphan, becomes queen of the Persian Empire. Haman, who's the villain, is hung on the gallows that he had prepared for hated Mordecai, who then is exalted to his office. Quite a twist, the turn of events here, all right? The condemned Jews become victorious over their enemies, and the name of the one who controls the events of the narrative is not even mentioned. People have often doubted whether or not Esther should be in the Bible because God's name is never mentioned. Very interesting. More on that momentarily. The domination of Persian rulers is diminished by the intervention of God for Israel. All right? So, it appears that the author has deliberately refrained from mentioning God or any religious activity as a literary device to heighten the fact that it is God who controls and directs all the seemingly insignificant coincidences in the book that make up the plot and issue and deliverance for the Jews. God's sovereign rule is assumed at every point, as we read in chapter 4, an assumption made all the more effective by total absence of reference to him. So you have the plot. I'm sorry, I can't really go into much more detail than that, given uh, the time constraints on us this morning. But how is this a help Uh, to you and to me as an instruction in God's providence. Well, we read in question uh, and answer 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me just turn there, sorry. How does this help us? We can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will ever separate us from his love. The book of Esther teaches us a very important lesson about God at work in history on behalf of his people. God is the keeper of the covenant. He is ever and always faithful to that covenant. And he's the keeper of his covenant people, the church. He even follows his people into exile, all right? This is what is meant, uh, and I think we touched on this last week, in Romans chapter 8 and what's referenced uh, here in the catechism when Paul, writing in Romans chapter 8, we, oh, we looked last week at Romans eight twenty-eight and 29. Let me just repeat that for everybody's benefit, all right? Romans eight twenty-eight is the verse everybody always mentions, uh, memorizes, right? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and uh, uh, keep his promise, right? So, in all things, in all things, such as what are mentioned by the catechism, right? Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to the promise, right? So, but what's the good? Anybody that has suffered adversity or anybody that has undergone a dark providence can find that very difficult to believe, all right? How does the death of a child, how is that good? How is someone, a loved one that dies of cancer, how is that good? How is somebody that's crippled in a car accident and a paraplegic uh, or a diving accident like Johnny Erickson Tata, right, for the rest of their life, 50 years in a wheelchair in constant pain every moment of every day of their lives, how is that good? Well, the good in verse 28 is defined for us in verse 29, 
right? You need to know that. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29 begins with this word, for. That's an explanatory word. It's a conjunction. It joins verse 29 with what's been said in verse 28. And it's an explanation or the reason for what has been said in verse 28. And we find the definition in verse 29 of the good in verse 28. What is that? Well, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that, we might, uh, that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. So what's good about all those dark providences? Is that God is at work because he is almighty and because he is loving, that on the behalf of his people, whom he has chosen and whom he has loved, he is so powerful and so loving, he can take even dark providences and work them to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So the question, as I mentioned last week, just repetition is the teacher's friend, right? As I mentioned last week, the question when you undergo dark providences is not, God, why? Why is this happening to me? The question is, Lord, how are you using this to make me more like Jesus Christ? You may never get an answer to that question. But you know that somehow, in some way, the God who has loved you with an eternal love is at work through those circumstances in and amongst his people to conform you to the image of his son. And in faith, you can say, Lord, whatever. All right? And that's how it helps us. We can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. And that's what's said in verses 38 and 39. Paul ends this chapter this way. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you loved by God? Has he chosen you from before the foundation of the world? Has he set his eyes on you and with cords of compassion drawn you to himself by the cross of Jesus Christ, forgiven your sins, cast them into the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west? Nothing will ever separate you from his love. Nothing. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in. He is almighty powerful. He is sovereign God. And he is immensely, eternally, infinitely loving towards you, people who have been bought with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And we learn that in the book of Esther. He keeps his covenant and he keeps his people, all right? Second lesson, how this helps you. God must direct all the details of life, right? So, listen, some of the mundane events of life in New York City. You come to Midtown Manhattan, and it's like, am I going to have to pay 50 bucks to park my car? And you find the parking spot. What, what, what? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Or you ride on the subway and you get a seat. Thank you, Lord. Right? God's in control of even the mundane offense of our lives. <clears throat> and he's due that thanksgiving. We must never fall prey to the evil of fatalism. You know what fatalism is? This is, this is Islam, all right? Inshallah. 
We can never know if God is for us or against us. If you're a Muslim, you don't know that. Whenever you witness to a Muslim, right? I had a Muslim say to me the other day, he said, God bless you. I said, oh, are you a Christian? He, he, said, he said, no, I'm Muslim. I said, oh, well, then you should say Allah bless you, right? He said, oh, you know. I said, who is Jesus? He said, oh, Jesus is Isa, the prophet, right? I said, Jesus is the son of God. Anyway, I won't tell you the whole conversation, right? But the point, point is, is, as a Muslim, right, is God for you or is God against you? Will you go to paradise when you die? Inshallah, if God wills it. But we don't know what God's will is. That's fatalism, right? Or que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be, right? You say, oh, well, you know, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. You know, it's like, who knows, right? No, no, no. You know if you're a Christian. You don't have to adopt, and you shouldn't adopt that posture, that idea, that thinking. God, the sovereign God, the God who has loved you with an eternal love in Jesus Christ, is your God and Father because of Christ. This isn't fatalism. God's at work in and through the major and the minor details of life for your good and for your salvation. We see this in the verses that we read. Mordecai says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And Esther sent word to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews... Uh, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That was not fatalism, right? God's in complete control. And Esther didn't say, well, you know, case or No, she had to be personally responsible. She had to act. She had to be faithful. She couldn't just default Oh, God's in control. I don't have any responsibility here. No fatalism. Next lesson. As I mentioned earlier, the antithesis. You and I, as God's children, as God's dearly loved people, we have enemies. Now, just think about that for a couple of thousand years. That's a profound statement. We have enemies. We have people who desire to be rid of us. We have people who desire, who hate us, and desire that we would go away. You see this all over our society today. We got to get rid of those Christians. Can't have these Christians messing up our plans. You see it in the persecution of brothers and sisters around the world. Read some of these letters. Talk to Jen Basile. She follows this more closely than most of you about the persecuted church. And hear the stories about believers all over the world are suffering for the cause of Christ. Why? That's the antithesis. And you and I have it as well. Whether it's on a small level in our family, on our jobs in school, or whether it's on a major level government encroachment. The Department of Justice six the FBI on parents as domestic terrorists. We have enemies. But the major thing is that we see Jesus Christ in the book of Esther. You say, hold on a minute. I know the book of Esther, Pastor. I've actually read it all. 
I've read every verse, and I didn't see Jesus Christ in any one verse. Well, you didn't see God either, did you? But God was there, right? Just as God was absent in the book of Esther, but was controlling all the events for the good and salvation of his people, so God was absent at the most critical point in Jesus' life. And that was at his crucifixion. You remember the words of Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet it was exactly in that absence, as it were, that God was accomplishing the salvation of his people, including you and me, if you're a Christian. God took the most heinous, wicked act of injustice in the history of the world, a perfectly innocent, perfectly obedient Jesus, the Son of God, condemned to die as a criminal. And turn that heinous sin, sin in the book of Acts, right? When they go around preaching, you killed him. You crucified the Lord of glory. It was a sin. But God turned the greatest sin in the history of humanity into the means by which his people would be forgiven and granted eternal life. His absence was for his glory and for your salvation. little bit more. The book of Esther is the reversal of the expected. What appears inevitable, the destruction of the Jewish people, isn't inevitable. Who appears powerful, the king, Haman, isn't powerful. Appearances are not what they seem. And Jesus, the unexpected savior, is not from Jesus, but from Nazareth. He's the son of a carpenter, not a king. He's... um, Uh, reviled and rejected because of his appearance. He's not esteemed. He dies as a criminal on the cross and is buried in a borrowed grave. And yet Jesus is the ultimate mediator, not Esther who mediates for the Jewish people, but Jesus is the ultimate mediator who mediates for our sins by taking them on himself on the cross and granting those who trust in him his perfect obedience, his righteousness, and who resurrected from the grave and lives ever to intercede for us, just as Esther interceded for the Jewish people. Esther risks the palace. If I perish, I perish. But Jesus left his throne to save his people. Not if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I will save my people. And if and when he is your security, your value, your worth, then you can risk your all for him. The book of Esther, returning to somewhat of a more mundane level, shows us that God loves a good story. God loves a good story. It's one of the world's greatest examples of dramatic narrative. It's a literary masterpiece. And we ought not to lose the glory of the story. Because in this book we see God, although not mentioned, at work. And we learn something about the finished work of Jesus Christ as well. How does God's providence help you, even in dark providences? He works for your good and for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you.
uh, for your control of all the events of heaven and earth and that you uh, direct them uh, to your appointed ends. Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful that you are risen on high um, and that you uh, cure uh, my cynicism and, and our cynicism uh, by being in complete control of the events of men and nations and directing them to your appointed ends. And we are thankful that even your enemies one day shall praise you. We ask that you would preserve us. We ask that you would protect us. We ask that you would grant us your grace. We ask that you would grant us to grow in grace and knowledge of who you are and of how you work on behalf of your people, that we might ever and always be confident of your great and precious promises and the greatness of your love. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.